Welcome. Good to see all of you here today and uh, extend my greetings as well to those joining us on live stream, which I'm confident today would include Kevin and Yulia and Daniel and Valerie and Philip, who we already appreciated earlier. Thanks. You guys, well done. And kids, you did great. Pastor Jay misses you. Looks forward to seeing you again someday soon. So um, there you go. I would love to have you take your Bibles. And join me in the book of Philippians, actually, is where we will begin and end today. But I so love the opportunity this morning to open God's word with you on the second Sunday of Advent. Philippians chapter 2 is where we'll want to start. And as you have already heard, with this um, progression of Advent, we are uh, coming this year under the heading... Uh, the Virgin Son, Savior of the World, the fifth in a seven-part series that we are moving through year by year. And of course, this is our second go-around of these, uh, these different uh, the plays and then the sermon series drawing our attention to certain high points in the story of redemption. And we're grateful to do that. Today, then, looking at the heading, God Comes in Human Form. And I would like to reflect with you today on the humanity of Jesus, fully human, yet without sin. And in Philippians chapter 2, there is a section I want to read. It is one of uh, the classic theological reflections on God becoming man. On Christmas, really, though, without mentioning it, the Apostle Paul then And I'm stepping into the middle of a paragraph, I realize, because I want to begin reading at Philippians 2, verse 5. But here is is what Paul says about this God becoming man. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This morning, we want to reflect on that, that process, that emptying himself, this mystery. Theologians have wrestled with how to say it and how to say it right for years, hundreds of years. Emptied himself. Well, we want to think about that, all moving toward the spot that you see in your sermon notes, if you have those in front of you, in the responding to God's word part. That's where we're heading. Three responses, I believe, that will spring from our texts today. Worship, humility, and boldness, I believe, are reasonable, logical outcomes of what we want to look at today. God comes in human flesh. I would love to pray for us. And we'll jump into our study this morning. Father, I thank you for the privilege of opening the word of God together as the people of God. 
And I thank you that in this season, uh, certainly the season of Advent, but as well the season of life in which we find ourselves now, that we can turn our attention to the work of Christ in redemption, and in particular this, this God becoming human, this, this moment that we celebrate at Christmas, this, this miracle of the birth of Jesus. And I pray, our Father, that you would capture us with that moment, certainly, and at the same time, the whole story of redemption, because we are people who need redeeming. Every one of us needs a Savior. And I pray that you would, you would emphasize that in our hearts today, each of us, our need, our need of a Savior. So help us now as we open the Word of God together. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd love to have you come back with me then to the book of Acts. We'll return to Philippians a little later. But, sorry, did I say the book of Acts? I meant the book of Luke. Same author. Luke chapter 1. Sorry, Luke chapter 1 is where we want to go. We begin moving through the Christmas story last week. God speaking in that theological darkness. And we come today to chapter 1, verse 26, the part that you saw portrayed on stage. And as you know, during this Advent series, the play is, in a sense, part of the sermon, not only introduction of it, but you have heard much of the scripture that we'll consider today already. If you look at your sermon notes, you see three different movements that represent the three paragraphs in the text today, Luke 1, 26, down through the end of the chapter. Uh, we saw last week... God reaching out to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah, God remembers the sending of John the baptizer, as we might more specifically call him, the one who would be the forerunner, the one who goes ahead of of Jesus, Messiah, to prepare the way. And so now we come then to six months later in the story, in verse 26, as we look at God's word together. We read, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and he came and said, and here comes the voice of the angel. We'll stop here for a moment. Uh, Under the heading that I have in front of you on your study notes, God gives his greatest gift through very humble means. Not only were we introduced to Zechariah and Elizabeth and their, uh, their humanity last week, including the questions and the doubts and the fears that were theirs, Now we go not only six months later, but from uh, an older couple, they are pronounced in chapter 1, advanced in years, in verse 7. Now we go the other way in terms of age to Mary, uh, who by custom and indications, suggestions in Scripture, we would see her as a young gal, uh, probably a teenager. Some have guessed, based on culture, as young as 14. Can you imagine? Today, no offense to 14-year-olds and younger, we call them children. We're all grown up when we're speaking to them, but behind their backs we say they're they're just children. Indeed, she was uh, young. And yet, as we're going to see through the text, this is an amazing girl. Young, yes, steeped in Scripture to where when she thinks and talks, you hear the word of God. Uh, by, by those estimations and certainly by our customs today, this is a quite a young lady. Um, I have on your study notes, Mary and Joseph are betrothed. 
uh, we often substitute our, our cultural term engaged for this, um, it, it, but they're not identical. They're not equivalents. We have certain customs every culture does with what engagements mean and the seriousness with which people take them. Betrothal in the time of Scripture was, was much closer to being married than just a, like a promise of something to happen. Uh, in fact, they were considered to be legally bound together apart from living together or sleeping together, awaiting the day when there would be a wedding feast, I, probably more than a day. Uh, perhaps a week of celebration. Um, But such a serious relationship that to break it off, as we'll read in a a little bit in Matthew 1, that it would require what would be considered a divorce to break it up. So betrothed, yes. I emphasize that because I I want you to see uh, a little bit of the background so that when you read about the interaction between the two of them, you understand uh, a little more of what's, what's expected here. Yes, they're engaged, certainly. Now, the, the, the angel's voice then, verse, 20, verse 28. The angel says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And of course, she's troubled at that saying. <laughs> no kidding. Uh, we don't have conversations with angels every day, now or then. Tried to discern what kind of greeting this was. And the angel said, Don't be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. And behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, if you were with us, two, uh, I believe it was two years ago, if I get our Advent series chronology correct, two years ago our topic was, was David, shepherd, warrior, king. And we took as a key text, 2 Samuel 7, which is the Davidic covenant. You you should be familiar with this. One of the high points in the story of redemption where God comes and meets with David. David sitting in the presence of God and God makes promises to him that go far beyond his little kingly life. There will come in your line one who will sit on your throne forever. He'll be a forever king. And David rightly sat before God and said, wow, how can that be? People live and people die. How can there be a forever king? Uh, believing in faith and yet not understanding how it would all work out. I remember some years ago as we put together that series, David, Shepherd, Warrior, King, um, there was a discussion as I was in it with uh, talking some things through with the one putting together the, the, the script And he said, man, I guess I haven't really thought about that. And I said, well, do this for me. Pull out your Bible study software and just search David, son of David, family of David. Just start looking. And it's, when you do that, it's it's like the night sky and stars. It It just lights right up. All the way through, you find Jesus, son of David, Jesus, son of David. The son of David will come. It's a tie in to 2 Samuel 7 and the promises of God. And so here, Gabriel makes a reference to Mary. He will reign over the house of, of, of David, the throne of, he'll sit on the throne of David. And I can just imagine Mary saying, of course, the Davidic covenant, Second Samuel 7. I learned that in Sunday school or wherever it was. I went that day. I heard it. Davidic covenant went to that Advent series. Yes, it's, it's the fulfillment of God's promise from hundreds of years ago. So I expect Mary is, is, is just amazed at this. God is keeping his promises from hundreds of years ago, and it includes me. 
can you imagine? Wow, looking around. Anybody else? Are you talking to me? What an amazing, amazing moment. So Mary hears Gabriel connect the dots, certainly to the Davidic covenant. Now, verses 34 and 35, Mary says to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy the son of God. Mary's young, but she knows where babies come from. And she knows, um, wait, uh, how's this going to work out? Good question. Now, I, I want to just take a, a, a poke at something here, uh, not, not inadvisably and not, I think, completely out of context. Mary knew the science. People talk today about knowing the science. And I, I just want to point out something. Um, True science is a theocentric study. It includes God in it. Sometimes people talk about science and they have removed God from it. And I would suggest to you at this point, you do not have true science. Some of the greatest scientists of all time have been God-centered, Bible-believing people. Okay? You should know that in your history of biology and science. Some of the greatest people who discovered amazing things in science believed that the universe had order and structure. That's why they were looking for reasons behind things. They believed it wasn't random. They had a God-centered worldview. Uh, So you should know that. Sometimes people talk about science like it's separate from God. And they, they say things, maybe we say things like this. God suspended the laws of science, and I would quickly, or the laws of nature. I quickly say, no, that isn't true at all as though the laws of nature were separate from God and God somehow a servant to them. And I've got to suspend those laws. He didn't have to do that. He owns it all. So to speak properly about this, it isn't that God interrupted the law. No, no, he didn't interrupt anything. The one who spoke light into darkness and created the world by speaking, what kind of laws of nature are those? He just spoke, the Bible says, and the world's existed. Let there be light, and there was light. Well, those all fit in in the big picture of a God-centered science. Uh, It includes God, God's acts. That doesn't violate science, it's part of science. I digress, but it's important, okay? So Mary then says, so how's this going to work out? Good question. And the angel says, ah, this will be a work of God. Not in violation of the laws of nature, but God interacting in the world that he created. Well, these are things to think about. Now, the second big paragraph then, again, we saw this represented on on stage, verses 39 to 45, as I move really fairly quickly through some of these things. Uh, Mary heads to Elizabeth, and I, I love the contrast between the two. Verses 39 to 45, Mary rose, went with haste to the hill country, to a town in Judah, entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. How old is Elizabeth? Well, older, okay? Advanced in years. And by six months, baby bump time. Here comes Mary, imagine, imagine. Here comes Mary, much younger, uh, what you would call a grandma age and a teenager. It's an amazing moment. Elizabeth carrying John the baptizer, I like to call him. He wasn't a Baptist, like Baptist, Lutheran, Methodist, etc. No, no, a baptizer. He baptized people, okay? So he wasn't starting a denomination. He baptized people. So John the baptizer, who is the forerunner, here they are in the same room, and Mary speaks, and this 
this living, breathing infant, which is what the term means when you dissect it a bit, a living, breathing infant in Elizabeth's room leaps for joy. It's the mother of the Savior. And Elizabeth identifies that wonderful moment. And I love the older woman to the younger woman. Her, her statements of blessing as you look at verse 42. Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She's, she's appreciating the moment. I, I get to see. I get to see the mother of Messiah Jesus. My Savior. Isn't this amazing? I find here in Luke's gospel and telling of it, some of the encounters with some of the older folks, Simeon coming up, Anna later on in the temple. Um, so rich as those who knew and those who believed said, I'm seeing with my eyes God's redemption unfold and I am so privileged by this. Even though in some cases they would not see the end of it. We'll talk about Zechariah and Elizabeth next week. I'm really excited about some things we get to consider there. God visits us with tender mercy. That's next week's sermon. You should be around for that. There are some deep mysteries there. God's tender mercy, and may I suggest as well, as you'll hear next week, God's severe mercies. God's severe mercies are at play as well. And we'll get to think about that together. Elizabeth then expresses encouragement to Mary. I put that in our vernacular, go for it, Mary, good for you. Older woman to a younger one, Mary, God bless you. God bless you, my daughter. Now, I want to go to Mary's song, verse 46, in this third movement of the text. Again, moving quickly from one to the other. I want to read this whole song and consider what she says. I'd like you to look at what she says. in her. It's a song of praise, what she sings about, what she doesn't sing about. And uh, I want you to notice the things she says about the work of God. So here then, Mary's song, verse 46. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant and behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Now, a number of things here. If you were to read 1 Samuel 2 and the, the prayer of Hannah, uh, you remember Hannah also, like Elizabeth, older in age, not having children, and finally God was granting her that privilege. And she gives a prayer of praise. And there are similar strains here in Mary's song. Enough so that where if, if you were a school teacher, you'd say, that's plagiarism. And if you're not a school teacher, then you would notice in the Bible a strong suggestion that Mary knew 1 Samuel 2. And Mary knew Hannah's prayer. 
because she talks about God and his work in very similar ways. So we see Mary, no doubt, understanding the Davidic covenant. Mary now apparently being well-versed in Hannah's prayer. And we'll see here in a moment, clearly familiar with the Abrahamic covenant as well. Amazing girl, this is. Now, as I have noted here on your study notes, I want to take a minute with this. Mary is focused on God's plan, not on her problems. You say, what, what, what do you mean problems? She doesn't have any problems. You want to bet? Uh, this girl has got some serious challenges ahead. She, um, obviously, after the initial encounter with uh, the angel, she had had to have a conversation with Joseph. Can you picture how this goes? Uh, Joseph, I know we're engaged or betrothed. By the way, I had a meeting with an angel. I'm going to have a baby. How's that work? Well, I want to go to Matthew 1, and I just, I just want, to, I want to read about this just a bit. The work of God in, in Joseph's life. Again, some of these things have already taken place by the time you get six months later. Uh, or, but certainly here in Matthew 1, this is a moment. We're not told the specific chronology of when all these things happen in relation to the conversation with Elizabeth and so on. But in Matthew 1, a couple details I want to pick up. I want to read chapter 1, 18 through 25. And just reflect with you on Mary for a moment. We read, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, I want to I reflect with you on a, what I think is a, is a good question here about the working of God, and it applies to Mary and Joseph and to you. Um. God had no problem sending Gabriel to Mary. So Mary knew what was going on. Here's my question. Why did God not send Gabriel to Joseph sooner? Why is it that on the same, the same day that God didn't address both of them so that when Mary went to Joseph and said, Joseph... I saw an angel that he would say, I know, I did too. Can you believe it? Instead, God sends them into this moment of challenge and perhaps disharmony. He, God hasn't told Joseph yet. You see the challenge here? 
Why not just tell Joseph and relieve the stress? Why? Why allow Joseph, who's a just man, doesn't want to shame this girl. He's, he's mulling over divorcing her, ending this, in, this betrothal in a formal way. Um, and he's considering these things. How long is this? I don't know. Is it hours? Is it days? Is it weeks? How long? I don't know how long it is. The point is, God allows this moment for Joseph and for Mary. Now, there are some things not mentioned in the Bible, and you want to be careful about, about asking too many questions about what isn't here. Certainly what's here is for our good, and it's what we needed to know. But, but did Mary have family as well? Did Mary have a mama uh, to go home and say, Mom, did that happen? Who else did Mary have to tell? Well, there's, my goodness sakes, Joseph and anybody else who knew them and um, community and years of rumors. And apparently rumors did indeed follow Jesus through his life. I give you one text that's a bit of a hint in this direction and maybe only that from the Gospel of John where later Jesus fully grown. Now, of course, so years later is in a conversation with some antagonists and he says to them, you are of your father, the devil, et cetera, et cetera. It's quite an animated conversation. And their response to Jesus is, what do you mean? We're of our father, Abraham. We were not born in immorality. And depending on how you play the emphasis in that text, they could easily have been pointing, kind of poking at that. Hey, Jesus, uh, don't look at us. We weren't, we weren't born that way. Uh, there are other indications in the Gospels that rumors followed Jesus throughout his earthly life. Mary was a part of that. Small towns, people talk. People say, oh, uh-huh, I believe you. Yes, angels. But they don't. I just wonder, Mary then is what I'm pointing out in, in these in her response to the angel, and now as she is with Elizabeth, in this wonderful praise uh, expression to God, she focuses on God's plan. She's captured by him rather than her own problem. She's not saying, oh God, you're amazing and I am in deep trouble. She says, you're amazing. I appreciate that. It's a challenge to me. Mary rehearses God's character. She says, in verse 49, he's mighty, he's holy. Verse 50, he's merciful, he's strong. You see all these things he has done. He helps, he fulfills his promises. This is a, a God-saturated prayer, the character of God. She rejoices in God's ability to lift up the humble and to put down the proud this is verse 51 and 52. Again, those are right out of the prayer of Hannah who gives thanks for the same things. And then you come to verse 50, uh, 55 and you see the reference to the promises to Abraham. And I put in your study notes here, certainly uh, Genesis 12, 1, 2, and 3, what we would consider that classic statement of, of God's promises to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, those are expanded, those, pro those promises in chapter 12 are expanded in Genesis 15, and it, that's the text where God takes Abraham outside and says, look at the sky, look at the stars, 
and says, so shall your descendants be, Genesis 15, 6, and Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then that promise is repeated again in Genesis 17, where the covenant the promises related to circumcision are played out and it, the comments about God's promise to Abraham expanded a bit. And Mary appears to, to know these things. She's heard the word of God, believed it, and it's ready on her lips. Wow, I love this. Mary, Mary, through whom God came in human flesh. Now, some reflections I have here in front of you. I'd like you just to to look at this with me for a moment as you look at your study notes. Uh, The virgin birth of Jesus Christ is a very big deal in the Bible. And it has been a big battleground area down through the history of the church. In particular, the last few hundred years as liberal theology came along and said, you know, seriously, folks, a virgin birth? I mean, what do we say here? Can you follow the science? Well, that isn't new, so to speak. The idea, though the term perhaps is overused today, uh, the concept has been around for a long time. Uh, The virgin birth is taught in, in the Bible and very clearly here in the text and it is reflected on theologically in the book of Romans, all over the New Testament in particular, Old Testament prophecy as well. God has no problem dealing with such things. But let me say this. We are right to honor Mary, as Scripture does sometimes in Protestant circles. We're a little hesitant to say much about Mary because we're afraid that it'll go too far, that people would misunderstand and think we're we're venerating Mary in an inappropriate way. After all, we're Protestants, right? And so we just don't want to talk about Mary at all. Well, we might understate at times what the Bible says. The Bible does present Mary as quite a girl here, doesn't, doesn't it? She knows her Bible. God honors her. Now, there are some areas, depending on your church background, things that you perhaps learned when you were younger. I know we come from all different backgrounds and, and places. But there are some, some details that sometimes people have understood or heard about Mary that are not reflected in the Bible. And I want to press on some of those for a moment. All right? Because I want to keep us to the text. What does the Bible say? What does it not say? And there are things that people hear and understand they are not in the Bible. For example, here are four. The Immaculate Conception, people talk about this, which is not about Jesus, it's about Mary, the idea, the teaching that Mary was born without original sin. May I just say, not taught in the Bible. Not in the Bible. Not in the Bible. And unnecessary for theology. People are trying to do something with that theologically, completely unnecessary. It didn't need to be uh, made up. The Perpetual Virginity of Mary that Mary never bore other children. Also not in the Bible. In fact, in the Bible, very clearly, there are other children who are half-brothers and half-sisters born to Mary and Joseph. James would be one. That are half-siblings of Jesus. So if you've heard of the perpetual virginity of Mary, it doesn't stand the test of Scripture. A role as co-redeemer with Christ. The idea that Mary's suffering is helpful for our redemption. Not in the Bible. Not in the Bible. Mary, did she suffer? Well, certainly, as we we read about, a sword will pierce even your soul. Well, yes, indeed it did. Mary, can you imagine watching your son crucified and die? But 
But her suffering was not for your redemption. That's the suffering of Christ. Okay? The suffering of Christ, totally sufficient to cover your sins and your shame. So the Bible does not present Mary as a co-redemptrix with Christ. Absolutely not. Fourth, the idea of presenting Mary as one to whom we might pray. Praying to Mary is not in the Bible anywhere. Anywhere. Uh, I understand the idea. People, you know, if, if Jesus is busy, talk to his mother. Not in the Bible. Not in the Bible. Not in the Bible. He's not too busy. No. No, he's not. No, he is the one through whom we come as we pray. He's never too busy. So you don't have to go talk to his mother and... She is not an intercessor. Uh, So these are things that people have added to the Bible over the years, not taught in Scripture. Okay? So I'm not meaning to pick a fight with anybody, but but I will say this. We stick to the text. Okay? We stick to the text. If there's a quarrel, let it not be with me. Let it be with the Word of God. So uh, we'll, we'll go right there. But I, I just want to highlight these things, even as we say what a wonderful young lady Mary was. Indeed, yes, you're right. But let's not go beyond what the Scripture says. Now, today then, uh, coming toward the conclusion of Luke 1, this element of God coming in human flesh, we're going to come, well, toward the end, toward the end of that section. Next week we get to, to look at this this. Um, this prophecy, this prayer of, of John the Baptist's father, Zechariah. Oh my goodness, what a treat is here. Absolutely amazing. Um, uh, I, I can hardly wait to go there. You don't miss next week, even if we're just online. You know how these things go, and anything can change. But come and be with us next week as we look at this text. Uh, I want to go back to Philippians 2 as we draw this time of worship toward a conclusion and do so by stepping toward communion. I want to go back to where we started, Philippians chapter 2, this paragraph that we stepped into the middle of at verse 5. Philippians 2, as it begins, is a call for Christians to exercise humility in their interactions with one another. But I mentioned that I I wanted us to journey toward these three responses of worship, humility, and boldness. And indeed, as we read verses 5 through 11 earlier, we saw verses 9, 10, and 11, where a call to worship Jesus is given. The name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth under the earth, every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This, this conclusion of worship is the way Paul wraps up this paragraph about the humanity of Jesus. He says, worship him, God in the flesh. Do you see this? Then exalt the name of Jesus, worship him, bow before him. Uh, the call to humility flows from this text. If Jesus himself would leave the glory of heaven and take on the form of a human and then go all the way to death and all the way to an awful death, the death on a cross. Why would you think you're really something out of curiosity if Jesus would humble himself that way? Ought we not to live in great humility with one another? So there's a, there's a call in this paragraph 
based on Jesus, to have humble hearts. And then, of course, boldness, and I'm alluding here to Hebrews 4. Jesus, of course, as our great high priest, can indeed sympathize with our weaknesses. Fully human, fully human. Yes, God in the flesh. We can come boldly to him. Now, we want to step toward communion. I'd like you to reflect on this text, verse 7, verse 8, and then 9 to 11. If you would reflect on this, I'll have just a couple of comments as we receive communion today. God comes in human flesh in the person of Jesus. And I'd like you to reflect on that for just a couple of moments. I want to pray for us, and then I'll explain how communion works and what that means to us. But pray with me here, please, if you would. Father, I thank you for the clear teaching of the text about the virgin birth of Christ. And I I thank you that you, O God, would intervene in human history in the sending of your son, Jesus, to become fully human, yet without sin, to be our sin bearer. We're amazed by that, hard to explain at all. But, O Father, thank you that you've loved us enough to send your son to redeem us. And I thank you for these moments to look at it and to treasure it together. And I pray now, as we remember Christ in communion, his body broken for us, his blood shed, that we would respond in these three ways. Yes, with true worship, with great humility in our hearts, and coming to you with grateful boldness. Father, may these be our responses as we Remember Jesus now, and we pray together in his name. Amen. If you know Christ is your Savior, as always, we invite you to share communion with us. And uh, we, these days, have been, we've got communion stations set up on either side and in the front. And if you know Christ is your Savior, and if you'd like to participate with us, it's your choice, of course, today. Um, we invite you to, in a moment, to visit one of those stations. You'll pick up um, one set of cups. There's two, a little cracker in the bottom and a cup of juice on top. Cracker, this just heads up. A little more wobbly this week. We got different crackers, etc. And it's a little more wobbly. I don't know how to say it other than that. So heads up and be careful, all right? You're welcome. I try to tell you things that are dangerous. So careful with those. Just pick up both and you'll have what you need. Then if you'd make your way back to your seat and uh, then I'll say a word or two and together we'll remember Christ. It will work better if those on the side who are going to come down to those areas, if you'd go up the side and down that aisle, and ditto here if you'd come up this, this way and down that. So those aisles are going that way so that you're not the fish swimming upstream. Well, if you'd like to join us, I invite you to come now and uh, serve yourself and then be seated. And in a few moments together, we'll remember Christ. cracker as directed by scripture points us to the body of Christ the reality of a human body verse 7 is that topic Christ emptied himself that is of all the trappings of glory that were his emptied 
Theologians have wrestled with that. What is this? What is this emptying? Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of, of men. He emptied himself. He left the glory of heaven, left heaven's throne. Place of being worshipped by angels to submit to the process of birth as a baby. All the learning and foibles and messes and hunger and all the rest that goes along with being born. Yes, he had to learn to walk. Yes, he had to learn to talk. He wasn't speaking when he was three months old because he was God in the flesh. The form of a servant. Amazing humility of Jesus to do that. And then verse 8, of course, he became obedient to the point of death. Wow. This little cracker is a prompt to your heart to say, think of, think of the body of Jesus broken for you on the cross, a real body. Let's remember him together. Verse 8 then. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. To read the gospel accounts, the death of Jesus on the cross was a bloody and horrible event. And aside from all the physical elements, he bore our sin. The Bible says that he died on the cross. He, he was a substitute for you that he himself bore our sin in his body on the cross. Our sin, our shame was on the cross with him. He died for us. And this little cup points us to his blood shed for us. Book of Hebrews tells us apart from the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. He poured out his life's blood for us so that we could be redeemed. And we're right to remember him and say, thank you, Lord. Let's remember him together. And verses 9, 10, and 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess, what is it? That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I hope that's the confession of your lips and your heart today. He is Lord. He is Lord. Stand with me. Let's conclude our time together with prayer. Father, I thank you so much that we could reflect today on these gospel truths at this Advent time. Thank you that Jesus came into this world, lived a perfect life, died on the cross in our place, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, indeed coming again. And our Father, as we walk through this season, this month and this season in our lives, I pray, our Father, you'd fill us with joy because of Jesus. May that be our uh, constant focus. Help us with that is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a good week. We'll see you very, very soon and next week.